Our scripture reading this evening is Exodus 32. We'll read verses 7 to 14 and verses 30 to 35, just again rereading the areas of intercession that Moses makes. We will not be reading it at this point, but we'll be reading Belgic Confession Article 26 later in the service. This can be found on page 180 in your forms and prayers book. I know we are skipping for the time being the prior articles. We last looked at Article 23 in Justification. It just worked so well to look at Exodus 32 and Intercession in the Belgic Confession. So we skipped ahead a few articles there this evening. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would bless the reading of it as we turn to what is now perhaps the more beautiful elements of what is a sad text. Beautiful for it shows what a mediator, what an effective mediator does. Ultimately, it shows what we have in Christ. And in this we rejoice and find so much here in in the beautiful office of intercessor, mediator, May not be lost on us, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts that we would receive and respond to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading 1 Exodus 32, 7-14. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now we jump ahead to verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. Ascends the reading of God's word. I would like to begin this evening where we ended this morning. That quote from Psalm 106, verses 19 to 23 says, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. 
They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. It's where we ended this morning and where we begin again tonight. One who stood in the breach. That's the center of this text. We come to the real purpose, the real reason it's in here. To see the one who diverted wrath. In fact, we could even say, in a sense, made atonement for the people in his office of intercessor and mediator. Who thwarted, as it were, the coming destruction of the people. You see, Exodus 32 through 34 is one narrative unit. It's one solid block. And though we have to separate it and cut it up as we examine it, it's really supposed to be kept together. And what we see in this, this whole block of text are three emphases. Rebellion, mediation, restoration. Rebellion, mediation, and restoration. Or dare we say, the all-too-common Gospel presentation of sin, salvation, and service. This is what we see here in this whole text, particularly as Moses is the the intercessor and mediator. A lot of what I'm going to say about Moses as an intercessor and mediator, I'm taking from a book by Michael Morales, a professor I had in school. He gives a lot of helpful understanding of what this mediator and intercessor is. In this chapter, then, we see perhaps more clearly than any other in the Old Testament text the use and worth of an intercessor. We see it so clearly here because on the one hand is the precipice of destruction, death. Moses thwarts that, and then as we'll see in the later text, it's the Lord's going to be done with the people. That's the threatening. And this is what one man, one intercessor thwarts and stops. As Israel's mediator, Moses gives himself to a life of intercession and prayer. It encompasses all who he is, and we'll see that as we go through this text, what he offers on behalf of the people before he's even gone down. The Lord informs him of what the people have done, and as he, as we saw this morning, goes down and deals with it before he's even done that, he's already set himself in their place as their intercessor to plead for them. This is the biblical representation of one who will strive for Israel's sake, claiming the promises that God had given them and putting it before God again, saying, remember these words. Remember who you are. Remember the promises you've made to us. And perhaps the main lesson learned from Moses' intercession with God is that by doing so, he enables Israel to maintain its relationship with God himself. It's nothing short of that. Apart from Moses' prayers, Israel would surely have been destroyed before ever entering the land, before gaining the promises. And in committing this apostasy and turning from the Lord, Israel had broken the covenant. And we had saw that, we saw that this morning as Moses breaks those tablets. And yet there's more to it than that. There's something profound and deep in it. You see, Moses did not just come and break the tablets and it was done. 
You see, the covenant that God made is, is somewhat unique. Often we'll hear verses and passages that say you've broken the covenant and you've violated it. God divorces you. And we would think, all right, that's it. That's done. And that's true. And it, it, it gives a point. But on the other side of it is this truth that the covenant is never broken. Because the Lord swore by himself to Abraham that he would keep this. It was the Lord himself who passed through the split animals when he made the covenant with Abraham. And it was he who said he would keep both ends of the covenant. And so on the one hand, we see it broken constantly, shattered. And then on the other hand, we see it, up, we see it upheld and kept. And how is it kept here? One man, through one man, is the covenant preserved. Of course, God would not break this. This is God's own election, his will. His will that through the mediation of the man, the people's representative, he would not destroy them. The Lord could have proven himself both just and good to carry out this intention to destroy the people, to start anew with Moses. And yet, while Israel deserved this judgment, the Lord's words actually served to bring a response for Moses. The Lord's words elicit a response and an intercession that God himself desired. And we might miss it if we don't have our theology right. We might not understand it. You see, verse 7 says, The Lord says to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And then verse 10, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He's saying, This is what I'm going to do. And some want to take this text, pull it out of proper understanding of the rest of God's word, of true theology, and then they would say, this is a text for open theism. What's open theism? The belief that God is not sovereign, that he doesn't function that way, that he is able to change his mind, that he doesn't know the future, or the future cannot be achieved to his exact ends. He responds. He's not the sovereign Lord. And that's not at all what's going on here. When we understand with our correct theology that the Lord does not ultimately change his mind. When we see that what he does always has a purpose, then what's going on here? What's going on here is that it was the Lord's will to present to his mediator this choice. And he does, even in the text. He presents him this choice. The way God phrases it to Moses, after promising severe punishment, after saying, you know, I'll begin again with you, Moses. We've gone through Exodus, we've seen what a rotten time Moses have had with these people. For all respects, for all purposes, you would think Moses should just say, yes, let's start over. It's a stiff-necked people who have given Moses nothing but trouble, and as we read this morning, these are the guys saying, that guy's gone. Not a lot of respect there. Why wouldn't Moses start anew? You see, the Lord wants a certain response he says, now therefore, says this to Moses, now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make you a great nation. This is like him saying, Moses, you stand in between me and the people and their destruction, step aside, and I will make a great nation out of you. Step aside, as we read from the Psalms, step aside from that breach, and they're done. It's a choice ultimately given to Moses. It's meant to elicit that response. Will he intercede? Will he be their mediator? Or will he turn their back on them? Will he step aside? And without even skipping a beat, Moses protects them. There's no pause. 
What does he do immediately? He turns to that intercession. He saves the people from God's wrath before he even go, had gone down the mountain. He intercedes for them. He dealt with the problem that was before them and intercedes. Verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Look what he's doing here. He's appealing to the fatherly protection, the past care of God. This is how he appeals. These are your people. You remember Exodus began, out of, out of, is, out of Egypt I've called my son. And we hear that quoted in the New Testament. But this was the son of God. This is what Israel called the people. This is how it began. These are my people, my son. And, the, and Moses is saying, remember them. Remember how you have saved them. What you've done with your mighty hand. This is that fatherly affection. And so first, Moses appeals to the Lord and intercedes with fatherly affection. We see that in verse 11. Now verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Here, Moses appeals to God's reputation. Now we might hear that and think, is that a little petty? That Moses is saying, hey, everyone's not going to like you if you do this. That's not exactly what's going on. It's more of, in one sense, a witness and an understanding Something like evangelism in a way. It's more saying, these nations that you, have, that you have taken the one Israel out of to declare yourself to all these nations, that this is your people, these are the people you have set your affections on, to destroy them now, what would that say to the nations? What would that say about you and your love? And so in this way, Moses is not only appealing for the people's protection, but for the Lord's own reputation. The Lord's own glory, and he's saying, if you were to do this, this is what it would mean about you. And again, this isn't open theism. This isn't God sitting back and saying, you know, Moses makes a good point. Maybe I should stop. This is exactly what the Lord had ordained, that this is how his very fallible human mediator would speak, would bring before him his own reputation. And so we see Moses intercedes in fatherly affection, second in God's reputation. And then verse 13 Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. This is the, the building up of the argument. It's this fatherly care, your reputation, but now this. Your merciful compassion, your covenant love and faithfulness. This is to what Moses appeals. That's that third Fatherly affection, second, reputation, and third, God's merciful compassion and covenant love. This is the way of intercession. And see what results, verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. It proves effective. And again, all of this, at least according to the way it's written in Exodus, and what I mean by that is that this account perhaps is not necessarily all chronological 32 to 34, the way Moses is speaking to God, their interactions. It's not necessarily that it happened in this, perhaps, order, but Moses ordered it this way in the text for a purpose. And what we see then in the narrative is that before Moses has even come down to deal with the people, he's already dealt with God. He's already spared them and preserved them from the initial judgment that they were to face. Morales says, Herein lies the crux of the drama. Part of the message is not only that without Moses' prayer, Israel would have been destroyed, but that without his intercessory role, there would never have been a tabernacle. There would never have been a dwelling for God. 
There never would have been sacrifices of priesthood. There would not be a book of Leviticus. There would be nothing to follow. Through Moses' profoundly empathetic, godly striving with the Lord, though, again, this is God's own desire himself, Israel will come to know the blessedness of the Lord. You can think of this this way. We end all of our worship services with a benediction and a blessing. Lord, bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. We, We end with that blessing. That blessing would not have been achieved were it not for Moses' work as an intercessor. That the people would know blessing. That in Numbers chapter 6, when the Lord gives us that blessing and says, this is the blessing you are to put on the people, they wouldn't have had it without that intercession. We see Moses continue intercession in verse 30 and following. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. And then look at what he says in verse 32. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And what I want to focus on is particularly that last sentence, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Just what is Moses asking here? He's really asking one of two possibilities. This is saying that book of life blot me out of. And so he's either, either meaning just kill me, take my life on, on their behalf, in their stead. Or he's even saying, damn me for them. And that's likely what he's saying. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says something very similar to this in Romans 9, verse 3, when he is speaking of his people. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I believe that is exactly what Moses was saying here. God presents him this choice. Moses, you are my righteous one. You're the one, my mediator, the one I have called. I will begin again with you. And Moses' ultimate response is to say, forgive the people or damn me in their stead. That he would ask to be accursed, damned in that way. Really what you're saying is, is blot me out of salvation. That's what Moses says. That's how he intercedes. Let it never be said that Moses didn't have a heart. What a a request. Now as we see, we see in response, we see what God says. Ultimately, he doesn't grant that request. He's not going to blot Moses out. Verses 33 and following say, But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then we read of the the plague that happens. So how do we evaluate all this? Verse 14 clearly showed that Moses' intercession was effective. But what do we make of this end here? We have to make some interpretive decisions. What's happening with this second intercession Moses makes in verse 30 and following was, was Moses trying to keep the additional punishment of the plague from the people? It's possible. He was, it was possible he was just trying to divert this plague. I'm, I'm not persuaded of that. God's response is to say, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So then the question commentators ask when you read this text is, did Moses fail? Why did he fail or did he fail? 
He, he gives this great sacrificial statement, blot me out instead of them, and, and the Lord says, no, I, I'm, I, the ones who sinned I will blot out, but does that mean it failed? One commentator would say it, it's because God well knew those responsible for who sinned, and he will judge those who sinned. One comment, another commentator says it's because Moses himself is not a perfect substitute. We'll re- revisit that in a moment. I think there's truth to that. John Calvin believed that the sequence of events is not written in that chronological order, which would change somewhat the way we understand Moses' intercession. But there's that question, all right, what do we say? I believe we see here that Moses' intercession certainly didn't fail. We see that in verse 14. In fact, the entire intent of chapters 32 to 34 is to show Moses succeeds and succeeds mightily. It isn't uncommon for the Lord to listen to intercession and still provide a certain judgment, a certain response of the people, such as a plague. And thus, I don't think it undermines Moses' intercession because there was a plague that was brought on the people. Ultimately, it does succeed. And yet, as far as Moses' request to be killed or damned in their place, I would argue this shows that he has a true heart, but he isn't the one to present this. Ultimately, he is a true mediator. He shows the heart of a true mediator, but not one God heeds in this way. Not one he'll answer. You see, it is true. The Lord will damn no one for the sins of another except himself. Moses made that great offer. Damn me. And ultimately, the answer to this dilemma is given in God's word. He will damn someone as a substitute. But but it isn't Moses and him as the mediator. It's Christ. It's himself. Does that not declare the beauty of God? Moses, in that way, fails in his intercession. I know I'm just arguing he did not fail, but what, what I mean by that is to say he, he couldn't be damned for someone else. He wasn't a perfect sacrifice. He was no perfect substitute. Paul in the New Testament couldn't do it either. And God would not, would not lay that burden on anyone other than himself. It is Christ who literally says, kill me damn me. He was damned to hell for us for eternity. Now, didn't it last eternally? The punishment was eternal and he was able to bear it because he was God. Yet make no mistake, he was accursed for us. He was blotted out of the book of life in that sense for us. That's true intercession. That's what we see in our second point, our true intercessor. You see, this whole text is saying the only hope for our sad idolatry is an effective intercessor. And Moses makes that point in a grand display. What a great job that Moses does here, fulfilling this, pointing to Christ in arguably a way that no one else would ever point to Christ until Christ actually came. And as worthy a mediator as Moses is, he's shown to be unworthy in that way. And that the intercession of Moses 
did not ultimately fail. He was not able to offer himself in their stead as the victim to be accursed, because Christ would be. And thus God spares his wrath because Moses is functioning as an intercessor and mediator pointing to Christ himself. And this is where I want to read now the Belgic Confession, Article 26. This article is really the culmination and application of this message, of this text, and that's how I'm going to use it here. Before I begin to read that, I want to say this expression of Christ as our true intercessor is one of the most beautiful articles in the Belgic, in my opinion. What you read here is, there's no other term other than just beautiful, as it explains what God's word teaches about intercession. Belgian Confession, Article 26, says this, We believe that we have no access to God except through the one and only mediator and intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous. He therefore was made man, uniting together the divine and human natures, so that we human beings might have access to the divine majesty, otherwise we would have no access. But this mediator whom the Father has appointed between himself and us ought not terrify us by his greatness, so that we have to look for another one according to our fancy. For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. Although he was in the form of God, he nevertheless emptied himself, taking the form of a man and a servant for us. And he made himself completely like his brothers. Suppose we had to find another intercessor who would love us more than he who gave his life for us, even though we were his enemies. And suppose we had to find one who has prestige and power, who has as much of these as he who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and who has all power in heaven and on earth. And who will be heard more readily than God's own dearly beloved Son? So then, sheer unbelief has led to the practice of dishonoring saints instead of honoring them. That was something the saints never did nor asked for, but which, in keeping with their duty, as appears from their writings, they consistently refused. We should not plead here that we are unworthy. For it is not a question of, our, of offering our prayers on the basis of our own dignity, but only on the basis of the excellence and dignity of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is ours by faith. Since the Apostle, for good reason, wants us to get rid of this foolish fear, or rather this unbelief, he says to us that Jesus Christ was made like his brothers in all things, that he might be a high priest who is merciful and faithful to purify the sins of the people. For since he suffered being tempted, he is also able to help those who are tempted. And further, to encourage us more to approach him, he says, Since we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has entered into heaven, we maintain our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to have compassion for our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things, just as we are, except for sin. Let us, let us go then with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in order to be helped. The same apostle says that we have liberty to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let us go then in the assurance of faith. Likewise, Christ's priesthood is forever. By this he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, who always lives to intercede for them. What more do we need? For Christ himself declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to my Father but by me. Why should we seek another intercessor? Since it has pleased God to give us his Son as our intercessor, let us not leave him for another, or rather seek without ever finding. For when God gave him to us, he knew well that we were sinners. Therefore, in following the command of Christ, we call on the Heavenly Father through Christ, our only mediator, as we are taught by the Lord's prayer, being assured that we shall obtain all we ask of the Father in his name. What a beautiful expression. What a beautiful expression of the content of Scripture itself. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Exodus 32 is something for us to jump off from. It's a platform. And we say, if this is what God would do for the mere Moses intercessor, what would he do for Christ? If a mere man could stand, as God upheld Moses, this sinful man, but this man to stand in the breach and thwart all the judgments of God, what does Christ do? And if that is true, and it is, what are we to him who loves us more than anyone else ever could? That's something, if we were taking a test, you had to take a multiple choice question and said, do you believe that Jesus loves you more than anyone else? We'd say, yeah, click. Let's just pause on that. That statement from the Belgic that's merely presenting God's word There is no one, no one who loves you more than Christ. That's the whole point. Moses was willing to damn himself, but Christ did. Do we question then that the Lord hears our prayers? Do we question that a sincere faith profession faith must save us? Can we have any doubt that our high priest so loves us that he is able to save to the uttermost? It is so beautiful in all it says. You notice that little portion in that article of the Belgic where it talked about the saints. And the reason it was talking about that was because the Catholic Church was, was putting forward saints as an alternate intercessor. Or Mary. The thought was at that time that, 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 that Jesus and God was too exalted, too glorious. Don't approach them when you have a problem. Approach one of the saints so that they can be an intercessor. And the response was, this is nothing short of, of blasphemous. We go right to Christ because he loves us so much that he would have done what he did while we were still sinners. Jesus loves you more than anyone. Do we hear that? All that Moses displays is just a poor, dim acknowledgement and a representation of what is the heart of Christ. Who is gentle to his people. Who is lowly to them. That he would descend to our level just so that he could bring us to God and intercede. The best way that we can say it, the best way I could ever say it, is not my own words, it's scripture. 
John chapter 13, verse 1. This is where we will conclude. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Before the feast of Passover, feast that would be his very death, where he would experience the full weight of hell itself. He knows that his hour has come to depart out of this world. And then it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. How he loves each of his own. Not just his disciples of that day, but each of us here who profess faith to the uttermost, to the end. That is an eternal truth that we cannot fully understand here now and never will. It is that singular truth we will spend all eternity trying to grasp, being reminded of that beauty that there was one who would become accursed for us, that he would intercede perfectly on our behalf. Let's go to that Lord and intercessor even now in our prayers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you not on our own words, nor our own righteousness. We come to you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we come to you through you, through what you have done. We praise you for all that you have done on our behalf. We see what Moses has done in Exodus, and we see that that was just a model, a little model created by you to show what Christ would do. That he, rather than hearing the words, I will build you up as a nation. All the rest are evil. Only you are the beloved son. Only with you I am well pleased. And yet, he said, blot me out of the book of life for them. Having loved your own, you loved them to the end doing all that you did to be an intercessor that you might be able to save us to the uttermost, to the nth degree. And we sit here knowing that there is, there is not one of us worthy. We are so unworthy. Even as we sit here acknowledging our own sin, even as we sit here in your worship service sinning, yet you save us. Let this truth be the fire that guides and ignites our heart. That we would respond to you in praise for all that you have done. We say this in the name of our intercessor and thus knowing you hear it all, perfecting even our prayers. We say this in Jesus' name.